I am. Write those two words in your notes, if you would. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Jesus Christ utters those statements. And not just so you can know a name, but so you can understand the nature of God. That's why Jesus says in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. And at that statement, the religious leaders wanted to kill him because they knew exactly what he was doing, equating himself with deity, calling himself God. And yet Jesus lays down probably the, the most profound indictment and says, Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. The bread is not just a name. He is your spiritual sustenance. The, the door is not just a swinging apparatus. It is the the way to eternal life. The light is not just something you acknowledge. It's something that takes over you and allows you to see the path in front of you. The way, the truth, the life are not just statements, but they are realities of someone who can only claim to be the way, the truth, the life, and no one gets to the Father but by Him. The resurrection, the life, the very one who conquered the grave, says, come to me. The true vine, nothing else will give you life and, and vitality other than him. If you abide in him, then you shall know and you shall see and you shall rest. The I am. The, the very phrase, two words, three letters, has pro, been such a profound and yet hard to wrap our mind around name. Who is the I am? The one who appeared to Moses, Exodus 3, which we're going to unpack this morning. Turn there in your Bibles if you would. One of the greatest statements in all of Scripture. The one that has confounded men and women for centuries. I am. The only place in the Old Testament where God explains his name. But not just so you know the name, but so you understand his nature. Write those two words down in your notes, nature and name. It's one thing to know the name of God. It's another thing to know the nature of God. And I will tell you that out of this text that we look at this morning that is given to us in Exodus we are confronted with two of the most fundamental questions any person can ask in life. The greatest being, who is God? And the second being, who am I? 
And this is where we, ladies and gentlemen, continue to, 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 to be hungry and to thirst because we've lost sight of who God is. And if you lose sight of who God is, you are lost in understanding who you are. John Calvin in his famous Institutes, if you've never read the Institutes by John Calvin, put that on your must-read list. When you see it, you're going to be like, great, what did Pastor Scott assign to me? Two volumes, one of the greatest works ever compiled, The Institutes of the Christian Life by John Calvin. But in it, John Calvin says this, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. We must regain a sense of who God is. The great theologian R.C. Sproul, when asked about the greatest need in America, answered, what is the greatest need for, for non-Christian America? He answered, to know what God is like. And then asked, what is the greatest need of American Christians? R.C. Sproul said, to know what God is like. We, we have somehow in our churches, in our devotions, in our worship, miss God. And, and we're suffering because of it. We feel it. And so this morning, I think this is a, this is a, 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 a tremendous passage, but I approach it with trepidation. Because who am I? Who am I to talk about the great I am? However important the exodus is, what's even more important is for us to see God revealed in his magnificent majesty in character, in nature, in attributes, who he is. So let's turn to Exodus 3. We're just going to look at verses 10 through 15 as if it's just looking at <laughs> five verses, six verses. We're going to answer two questions this morning. First, the meaning of us, which is not the most important question, but this is where Moses goes. Who am I? And then the mystery of God. Who are you? Verse 10, chapter 3. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh. This is God who has appeared to Moses as a fire within this bush in the middle of the Midian wilderness. He's not the bush. He's not above the bush. He's not next to the bush. He's in the bush. He's a fire that doesn't derive anything from the bush or any, it's a self-sustaining, brilliant presence of God, self-existent, who says to Moses, don't approach the bush haphazardly, don't approach the bush 
carelessly. You are on holy ground. Moses, you need to understand something about me. But I'm going to call you into service. Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And God says, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall come back here and worship me at this holy mountain. And then Moses says to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name, or what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Two things, two questions. Who am I and who are you, God? Just think of Moses' task. Think about the fact that here's an old man, he's 80 years old, who's been tending sheep in the wilderness for years. And he's now somehow got an appointment by God to go to Pharaoh. I mean, how do you get an appointment with Pharaoh? Being someone who's been off the grid for four decades, the most powerful ruler on earth, do you just call the secretary and say, hey, can I get in with Pharaoh? Someone who has been living in obscurity, who has pretty much, I think, been forgotten, how do I go not only to Pharaoh, but God, you're asking me to go to the people that 40 years ago I tried to deliver, again, it was according to my will, not your will, and we know how that thing turned out, that was a real debacle. How am I to go to these people where I am a man of no reputation, and if I have a reputation, it's not a positive reputation, and say to Israel, hey guys, never mind the chariots of Pharaoh, follow me. Never mind the armies of Egypt, follow me. What slave in his right mind would take Moses at his word? Who's going who's gonna to see this 80-year-old man and go, we're going to follow that guy? And, and here's the problem, right? Here's the problem when it comes to answering the question, who am I? It doesn't matter who you are. If I, if I could say it another way, what Moses thought of himself or what others thought of Moses really isn't important. And how this is such a relevant message today, what you think of yourself is of no importance. What others think of you is of no importance. 
when it comes to identity. Like Moses, we feel inadequate. We feel we have no reputation. We consider our history, our track record, and go, I'm a loser. I'm a failure. We consider our weaknesses. We consider our insecurities, our lack of self-confidence, our stubbornness. You may see a bit of stubbornness in Moses and, and his questioning of God. Almost like he's just delaying the inevitable. He's just looking for excuses. God, have you seen my resume? <laughs> Moses says, 40 years, what have I been doing? Tending sheep that are not even my own. They're my father-in-law's. He's unpacking all of his hang-ups with God, which I, I love. And I love the fact that God is big enough for you to deal with all your issues with him. Right? In the middle of the wilderness, there's no one around, and Moses is just, he's just throwing it all out before God. If your God can't handle your, you unpacking your issues and your hang-ups, your God's not big enough. God's listening to Moses. And he's just going to tell Moses, you've, you've lost perspective. What you think of yourself and what others think about you is of no importance whatsoever. I am going to send you. You are going to be my instrument to lead the people out. Lest you think Moses is going to save Moses is not going to save, just like you're not going to save. God is the one who delivers. He just uses us as instruments in the process of his work. And I don't know if you're like Moses, but I'm, I'm going to guess that perhaps you are. Too often we want God's mercy, but we don't want God's mission. Too often we want God's blessing, but we don't want the burden of doing things that the Lord wants us to do. Too often we want to be saved, but we don't want to be sent. And if you remember last week, what we have to understand is your salvation is tied to your sentness. God's mercy is tied into you being on mission. And your blessing is connected with taking on the burden as many men throughout history, who men and women who have known the Lord, have taken that message that there is a God who wants to deliver them. And, and you can't separate that. You cannot be a Christian and not be a missionary. You cannot be one who follows Christ without also having a hunger to be used by God and connect with something that's going to outlive you and ultimately be time and eternal. Moses is wrestling with two things here, and in, in they're in your notes. The question of identity and the question of ability. Let's talk about question of identity. Because this is the existential question. This is the question every single person born into this world has indelibly written upon their soul, their spirit, their mind, their heart, their life. Who am I? It's this question that gets to meaning it, it deals with origin it deals with purpose it deals with destiny who am i and and if you if you love you know this what's going on in the scene here's what god says moses it doesn't matter who you are what matters is whose you are ladies and gentlemen this is huge See, 
I know and you know people invent and reinvent themselves almost on a daily basis, right? What we see through social media, we see through interactions, we see through celebrities and interviews, and people are like all over the place. And we live in a world where we can do this, invent and reinvent, invent, reinvent. The problem is what we tend to create is, is shallow because we have nothing bigger than us to help us form our identity. We just kind of borrow from one another. Right? Like my identity in high school, I, I lived in two groups. Don't need to write these down. I was in the stoner group and the jock group. The, st- the stoner group, because I had long hair and I listened to 80s glam rock and I had red eyes. I never smoked marijuana, but it always looked like I was stoned. And every day they'd be like, Dude, are you stoned? I'm like, no, I just have bloodshot eyes always. Right? But the perception was, dude, that guy's a stoner. But then on the weekends, I'd go hammer it out on the football field. And people were like, dude, that guy's a jock. Well, who was I? Was I a jock? Was I a stoner? I was so much more than that. But yet, people wanted to help me try to fit some sort of mold, find some sort of identity. Do you guys realize the rates of depression are higher than ever before? And part of that is caused by the brittleness of, of who we think we are. Which means, again, we're evaluating and reevaluating our identity, striving to confirm it, dealing with failures to live up to it, and, and it's a constant battle. And there's two things that we're never to derive our identity from. It's not from achieving, and it's not from perceiving. So not achieved. Your identity is not achieved. Meaning oftentimes we as humanities connect our identity to our performances, to our accomplishments, to our achievements. And the problem with connecting your identity to those kind of things, whether it be work, whether it be school, whether it be a husband, whether it be a father, those things are all too fragile. Right? Because the moment work it's horrible, your identity is horrible, right? Whether my fathering is horrible, then my identity is horrible, right? All those things in and of themselves are wonderful, but they're never designed to, to, for you to form your identity. They're way too fragile. The second thing you never form your identity from is perception. The way you perceive yourself or the ways other people perceive you. Let's, let's deal with our own hearts. I just was heartbroken the other night. I had someone tell me that someone I used to know has a teenager who's transitioning from being a, a dude to a dudette. And they're, and they're 15, and I think they started this journey about two years ago. 13, they don't even know how to tie their shoes. And you as a parent are saying, oh, go ahead and just define yourself however you want. Are you kidding me? We're not even going to issue that kid a driver's license, someone to operate a 3,000-pound vehicle. And yet we're going to let them try to figure out who they are sexually as if sexuality is the peak of our identity. Ladies and gentlemen, what I feel about myself doesn't matter. How I perceive myself doesn't matter. And much less you then adding to my false perception or false reality of who I am doesn't matter. And yet this is the realm we operate within. 
write down two words. Extremities or extremes and evaluation. You cannot derive identity from things that are achieved or things that are perceived. Why? Because they will never survive the extremes of this life. Meaning, here's the question, will my self-made identity withstand the pressures of life? And apart from God, you are building on shifting sand and your world will collapse. But the second question we fail, fail to ask is not will my identity survive the extremes of this world, will my self-made identity survive the evaluation that is yet to come? Meaning there will be an appraisal of your life of one who knows you better than you know yourself. Will I stand his evaluation? And yet if you do not know that I am, you will die in your sin. This is one of those realities that we have to come to grips with. The, the Bible says no one's without excuse. We will all stand before God and he will say, why should I let you in to this wonderful eternal home with me? News story popped up this week. Where's Kate Middleton been? And for some reason, I go, this is an interesting question. Like, I, I've never cared for the royal family. Where's Kate? Everyone's like, she's just off the grid. We don't know what's going on with her. Kate Middleton, if you don't know who Kate Middleton is, she's married to Prince William. I'm testing you guys because I know there's Harry. Duh. I was going to say Philip, but I know. But here's the thing with Kate Middleton. Um, when Kate Middleton was 15 years old, she would go to Buckingham Palace. And just think of Kate Middleton as a 15-year-old said, hey, I want to go meet the royal family. You think she'd get an inch past the guards? Not at all. But little did she know that destiny would allow her access to the royal family. Why? Because the one whom she would eventually marry. Now she has access to the royal family. Why? Because of who she is? No. Because who she is in relationship with. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that says you can never achieve, you can never perceive and. You, the, the, the identity that God has given to you is to be received as a gift, which is the third point. Once you come to understand the I am of God, the sheer fact that he is and that he is for you. And he doesn't want you to die in your sins, but he wants to give you access to himself and set you up for an eternal home with him forever. 
It's not something you can achieve, and it's not something you perceive. It's something you receive. And as many that have received, Jesus are now counted as his sons and daughters. Ladies and gentlemen, identity must be received. Why? Because you have been created in God's image. So, so back to Exodus. Moses didn't need a higher sense of self-esteem. What he needed was a greater sense of God's presence. Here is the answer to our identity questions. Our only hope is to abandon claims of our own sovereignty, our own sufficiency, and cast ourselves upon the mercy of the great I am. Because here's what God says to every single one of us. God is enough. He says to you, I am enough. Quit trying to bring to the table something else, something more. If you haven't received satisfaction in me, God says you'll never find satisfaction in anything else. You're not wired that way. The key is to take your eyes off yourselves, off your failures, off your weaknesses, and get a vision of God. All I know is that Isaiah chapter 6, when he got a vision of God, he fell to his knees and said, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And then he says, Lord, send me. There's nothing I desire but to know you and to serve you. Every major work of God in a man or woman's heart begins and is sustained by a fresh vision of who he is. Because what matters not is you. What matters not is how you feel about yourself and all the ransacking we do of our hearts and minds of how we failed, how we screwed up, how we messed up, how I'm an idiot, how I'm a dork. Stop. Get a fresh vision of God. Rest in his presence and accept the, the, the honor of bearing testimony to the Lord's revelation of the truth about himself and participate in what God is doing See, Moses is like, I can't, therefore I won't. And God says, no, you must, and you can get a fresh vision of me. And Moses, all of a sudden, is going to slowly change in his heart. And where he says, I can't, therefore I won't, he shifts to, I can't, but he can, and therefore I will. We tend to, to elevate ourselves a bit too much. Amen? And we don't elevate God enough. Which then brings us to the question of ability. God, God has given us big assignments. We call them God-sized assignments. Think about the fact that when Jesus leaves, Matthew 28, he says, hey guys, go into the world and disciple people and baptize them. Go turn the world upside down. And these 11 disciples are all looking at each other like, what? Like, who are we to go change the world? And you remember what Jesus says after he commissions them. Now, notice we call it the Great Commission. We, we treat it as the Great Suggestion, don't we? And that, that's bad on us. He says, and remember this. I am with you till the end of the age. It's almost like Jesus comes in and goes, I know where your hearts are at. And I know what you're thinking. And you're like, who am I? What, what can I do? Like, my ability. And God goes, have you forgot about my presence? 
remember as you go and do this God-sized task, I am with you. So the identity part is this existential. The ability part is the practical. And, and let me just tell you guys, it's never about my ability. It is always about God's sufficiency. It is never about me trusting in my gifts. It is rather me trusting in my God. It is never about me and my competence. It is always on the presence of God. The moment you make this about you, you're going to sabotage this thing. It's going to be a train wreck. And God just says, let me be with you. Let me work through you. God's sovereignty always involves human acti activity. And it is a mystery, right? And God's sovereignty doesn't make our participation in ministry unnecessary. It makes it mandatory. Because he puts his treasure in jars of clay. He does this so that in our weakness, his strength may be made perfect. He does this so he gets the glory. And I think about our ability, and there's, there's a few words I think about, like calling, right? If God calls you, here's what I, I understand. I love this quote, and I forgot who said it. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Right? He's not saying, hey, what do you bring to the table? Let's see what we have to work with. Because let's be honest, none of us would bring anything worthy or worthwhile. But God goes, me and you, now that's a whole different story. Has nothing to do with my competence. Right? Has nothing to do with this, this idea that... Okay, I've got all my T's, spiritual T's crossed, and my I's dotted. Therefore, Lord, I'm ready to go. Here's what God does not bless, competence. Here's what God does love to work with, messiness. Oh, and there's a lot of messy people in our, in our history as believers, amen? And you're some of them. I'm one of them. How about completeness? The fact that my ability has nothing to do when it comes to, well, I hope I do enough to make God like me. I hope I, hope I do enough to, to, that God accepts me. You are complete in Christ. This is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know what it's like to have nothing. I know what it's like to have a lot. But those things don't matter because I have Jesus. Right? So I'm complete. And I don't need ministry to make me feel more complete. Ministries is what I get to do for the glory of God so others can come to the table and taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? It has nothing to do with confidence. Some of us portray a, a, a sense of confidence that's actually more than really exists. And we don't put our confidence in the flesh. We put our confidence in the Father. And this is what God wants. He's going to get this through to Moses. However reluctant Moses is to accept the mission, God is, is speaking to his heart. And then he shifts and says, now we're going to deal with the more important question. Who is God? Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to say, the God of your fathers has sent me. And what do they say? What is his name? What shall I say to them? And then God says to Moses, verse 14, if you haven't highlighted, circled, 
made just emphasis on verse 14, do it, because again, this is the only place in the Old Testament where God defines himself and uses the phrase, I am. And, and I will call this, you can write down mystery of God. You can write down magnificence of God. You can write down majesty of God. But this is where God answers Moses' question, who are you? And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the most important question. And only in light of who God is can we honestly answer the first question, who am I? So let's unpack this. The mystery of God. The greatest passage in the Old Testament about who God is. And you wouldn't think it, looking at it, because you're sitting there going, what's being said? The name God gives to Moses, I am who I am? Like, what is this, Dr. Seuss? It's a revelation of God's utter and complete self-sufficiency. And I love it because what God's doing is he's answering the question, who am I? Based upon what Moses has already witnessed and seen with the burning bush. You think about the fact that God appears to Moses in this magnificent display in the middle of nowhere. And so much is happening in that moment. He's told to approach with caution that it is holy ground. He sees that the flame exists apart from the bush. The bush is not deteriorating. Its leaves are not being burned up. There's no smoke. smoke. There's no waste of energy, right? It's this... It's this inex inextinguishable force that's there, that's personal. It's addressing Moses, first name basis. And he invites Moses to come closer. And God is prepared to reveal to Moses something that's going to blow our minds. Because I think it blew Moses' mind. And there's three things I want to unpack here. Number one, the God who is. Before you understand God's name, he wants you to understand his nature. He wants you to understand his glory, his greatness, his distinctiveness, his otherness. The most pressing and urgent need for the church today is a recovery of the godness of god right it's the isness of god right it's a sense of what does he say to moses i am which literally means i be i exist i'm here and i don't need you to define me i don't need stuff to define me I am the uncaused cause. I am the one who is eternal, who's majestic, who's perfect, who's holy, who's omniscient, who's omnipresent, who's omnipotent, who is merciful, who is gracious, who is unchangeable. We call this the aseity of God, the fact that he is and he is self-sufficient. And so he says, I am, and is the summary of his being. You know, people will say, who are you, Scott? And, I, and it's so easy for us to go, well, I am a pastor. I am a business owner. I am Lori's husband. I am Addison's dad, whatever. 
right? We oftentimes associate ourselves with the things that we do or try to accomplish, right? Back, and God just says, hey, I am. People are like, wait, but you are what? Oh, let's talk about that. Let's unpack the mystery. The word Yahweh comes from this, right? And it was the name that the Jews revered that they would not utter. They revered so much they would not write. The word in which is most commonly found in the Old Testament that appears almost 7,000 times. Whoa! He is. I am. And yet, in this title, he identifies with people, right? He says, I am the God of your fathers. I'm the God who's shown himself in the past. But I don't need things, and I don't need people, and I don't need history, and I don't need events to make me important. I am who I am. So think about this in, in three ways, right? I am says this is my nature. Tell them I am who I am sent you. So now he's going to bridge his nature to his name and his involvement in our lives. And then he says, I am the Lord. Notice in your Bibles. Here's a kind of a fun little side note. Notice in your Bibles, verse 15, he says, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord. Your Bibles should have all capital letters there. Which again, this is the holy name of God, which is then translated Adonai. So the Jews found a way to utter the name Yahweh, to write the name in a way that would honor God. And so what we have as far as today, the Lord, that is the name of God, Yahweh. And it will always appear in all caps. So if you're ever wondering, you're like, you know what, this is one of those questions. I've always read my Bible and thought, why is Lord always in capital letters? Because this is the reverential name of God in which he now says, I'm identified with you. I am other, but I'm involved. He is the God who is. Before you get my name, please understand my being. And you know how long it's going to take to understand God's being? eternity that's how big god is you ever thought to yourself like what are you going to do for heaven like are there only so many songs i can play on the harp are there only so many naked angels flying around that we'd be like oh aren't they pretty like <laughs> naked little cherubs naked little cherubs you know what i'm saying here's what you will spend eternity doing if you're in christ you will explore the magnificent i am forever and ever and ever. And he says, I am who I am. I'm going to build a bridge between who I am and my name, and my name is associated with my reputation and my character. I am who I am as the God who has revealed himself to your forefathers, to the patriarchs. He is above, but he is among. Which brings us to the second point is not only is he the God who is, but he's the God who initiates. And here's the crazy thing about God is that he's involved. 
in our world. He's involved in our lives. He would be totally just to exist in and of himself, but instead he chooses to create the universe, the cosmos, the galaxies, black holes, nebula, things we all sit there and go, and not only just the macro universe, but the micro universe and the things that scientists long to understand, not just without, but within. He's a God who is involved. He's a God who says, I am involved in every place, at every point in time, in every circumstance. I am there. I am a, this living force, vital and personal, and I have a name, and I want you to know me. I want you to invite you into relationship with me. And the most th- important thing about God in his mission is himself. He's a God who wants to be glorified. Not that he needs it, but he, it, it, it's going to reflect how majestic he is. And we as human beings are the only creature that can do this willingly voluntarily, joyfully. The rocks cry out. The clouds declare. The trees announce. But only you know him by name. So God tells Moses, the most important thing about this mission that he has for Moses is is God. It's this God who initiates who would have been totally right to just leave us as we are, but he's involved. It's the God that Paul talks about with the, the uh, Athenians at Mars Hill. In him we live and move and have our being. The God who says, you know I'm there. I've made myself known in creation. I've made myself known in your conscience. You know I'm there. And I invite you into something. We don't love. We only love because he loves us first. So I took my family to go see Dune 2. Anyone see Dune 2 yet? Oh, phenomenal. Phenomenal. It's a new one. Some are like, you Dune, what's Dune? Yeah, you're, you're, you need to get life, basically. So Dune 2, amazing visually. But it's interesting because it's a Messiah story. It's a Messiah story that has no messianic connection to God. It's a Messiah story that's about political maneuvering. It's about economics. It's about who controls the market of money and goods and resources. There's no Messiah connected to God. Matter of fact, the Messiah story is a man-made story. And it's connected to a reluctant Messiah named Paul. I know, if you're thinking of a Messiah name, Paul is not the most exciting name, is it? But what's amazing is that this writer, Frank Herbert, who wrote Dune some 40 years ago, has created this this world where there's longing and there's yearning, but it has no connection with God. Therefore, it's empty and hollow and shallow. And so you can sit and be moved by this, this story and this movie and you hear what they're talking about when it comes to Messiah and being saved and being rescued, but there's no sense of connection to some almighty God who is. It is only connected to a God that we can manufacture and create. And even at the end of it, you're left with an empty feeling that it is not just about political maneuvering. It's not just about trade and commerce. 
there's something deep down within that none of those things will fulfill outside a relationship with the creator, sovereign God of all. Wow. So there's my theological treatise on Dune 2. Next is Mean Girls. Let's talk about that. No, we won't talk about that. But I, I, I think, you know, again, the world we live in is, is got this spiritual itch that it's trying to scratch, but it ultimately cannot answer apart from him. Which is why point three, and we'll land the plane with this, is so important. The God who involves. Namely, us. The God who involves fragile, weak, fallible, fickle, people. The, the fact that there's a God who could deliver his people without Moses, but he chooses to use Moses. Just like he chooses those 11 disciples when they're witnessing the resurrection of Christ, he says, lo, I'm with you till the end of the age. And the same God who says to us, I have not only saved you, but I'm going to send you. Because I'm a God who entrusts you with three things. And we're going to see this played out in Moses' life, not just today, but in the weeks to come. He's entrusted us with witness. He's entrusted us with word. He's entrusted us with worship. If you think about these three things, how important this is for us to not only understand in Moses' life, but our lives today. Think about these three things with me, if you would. Because Moses, while it is history, it is also illustrative of all of us who are saved and sent. First and foremost, you are to be a witness. And I love, you know, Moses sits here and goes, I'm going to stand before Pharaoh. Here I am, this old 80-year-old shepherd with a rod. How impressive is that in the courts of Pharaoh? And I'm going to be like, hey, I'm here to represent God. And, and he's like, what God? Right? I've got Ra. I've got Osiris. I mean, if you think about it, the Egyptian gods are, there's some interesting gods. You see this show Moon, uh, Moon Knight by Disney. It was Marvel's way of addressing spirituality. And it showed you really how far other gods fall short of the one true God, right? Because the Egyptian gods are all insecure gods. If you watch the show Moon Knight, which I recommend, it's interesting, the gods are fighting against each other. Kind of like the Greek gods of mythology. These are insecure gods that we have created after our image. And I want you to have the sense of confidence today that there is a God who has not only called you, but he's sending you to go into the world and be a witness for him. I think about the fact that when I was uh, at Arizona State University, the citadel of, of, of unbelief in our, in our city. Can I get an amen on that? The, the, the New Testament prof that I sat under, the religious studies professors that I had lunch with, who made it their aim every single semester to take very fragile young Christians into these college classrooms and say, our goal is to make you renounce your faith. And because most of these college-age Christians have not sensed a, a, a grand-sized view of God, because we've been reticent in, the, in teaching people who God is, they go into these environments and they have crises of faith. 
They go into these environments and they're beaten down, ridiculed, and scorned for their faith in Christ. I'm in a New Testament class with Professor Emerson, who I respect, who I've had lunch with, who said, you need to go to Harvard Divinity School. And I said, why? So that they continue to try to take away my faith? And Emerson, in a class of 200 college students, would say, Jesus never claimed to be deity. He never claimed to be God. Paul was a liar. This and that. Resurrection didn't happen. And everyone in this class is just sitting there silently taking notes. And I say, Dr. Emerson, can I, can I say something? What about, and all of a sudden we had an inter- interaction. And Dr. Emerson wasn't as strong on his, because he had a student who was fragile and weak, but yet I had some men invest in my life where I said, that's not true. Uh, out of due respect, what about this? And we go back and forth in class, not just one class, the whole semester. And eventually, after about a month, he said, hey, let's go grab lunch. And he was part of a liberal denomination that denied scripture, denied the Bible, denied Jesus. Essentially, they were called the Jesus Seminar. And every year, they would vote on the things Jesus didn't say and things Jesus didn't do, as if those things were based upon us. And I loved Dr. Emerson, and I prayed for Dr. Emerson. But I was not going to sit in a class where God has not called me to be a student. He's called me to be a witness. And let him just run roughshod over the faith that I have in Jesus Christ. And every single class, there would be times where the students would say, hey, thank you for saying that. Thank you for standing up. Thank you for speaking that. Thank you for, and I was just this guy, I'm like, I'm just available. I don't know it all. I don't have all the answers, but what I do know is that the things that are being presented are not part of the true gospel narrative. We don't establish the things God does, right? He's the one who defines truth. And why do we say that? Because he's the only one who appears in bodily form in the personal work of Christ. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. And not only does he say great things and do miraculous things, he backs it up with not only his death, his burial, but ultimately his resurrection. And when someone is risen from the dead who already told you they're going to rise from the dead, they prove a power beyond anything this world could ever offer, who testifies to the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and life, and he is worthy to be believed in, because if you believe in him, you shall be saved from your sins. Buddha didn't do that. Socrates didn't do that. Muhammad didn't do that. Joseph Smith didn't do that. Oprah Winfrey doesn't do that. Taylor Swift doesn't do that. You name it, none of them do it. Because none of them have the veracity to their truth claims like Jesus. We are a witness to these things. Moses, you think the power of Pharaoh's house is more powerful than me? Think about how I'm appearing to you now, Moses. Think about how I'm now speaking to you now, Moses. I can do great things through insignificant people. I'm entrusting you to be my witness. I'm trusting you with a responsibility to testify to what you have seen and not just what you've seen, what you've heard, which means now the word. Do you understand the, gr- the distinguishing mark of the church today is that we are given God's word And it's the very thing we neglect when it comes to our interactions with the world. 
why am I so dumb? Why am I so blind? Why am I so deaf? Why am I so wayward? And we sit there and go, I don't know. Go, go find out what your Enneagram is. What? Go read the secret. Go do what? And we neglect the word. The word is the only instrument that will help someone understand the true gospel, true nature of God. You neglect the word, there's no understanding of God. Yes, creation testifies to God, but it's only general revelation. It's not special revelation. It is enough to convict, but it's not enough to save. How shall they be saved? They shall be saved when they hear about Jesus, who is the word. They shall hear about Jesus when they are exposed to the word. You are entrusted not just with witness that you know him, but you've been entrusted with the word, everything that has been given to us in our Bibles that show us who God is. And not only that, but you've been entrusted with worship. As you live in this world, not only do you get the privilege to worship God, you are now inviting others into worship this God too, because here's the problem with the world. Everyone worships, but too many people worship incorrectly. Pharaoh worships, but he's worshiping wrongly. Moses, go tell Pharaoh about me. And this has nothing to do with political maneuvering. This has to do with a hardened heart that says he is worshiping wrongly. He has been created to worship me. And not just Pharaoh. Israel. Probably many of them have forgotten about their God. Why? They haven't had a witness among them. They haven't had the word among them. And they're not worshiping God correctly. How many of them have shifted into Egyptian worship culture? And now Moses gets to go and say, here I am to remind you God still is working. This is why evangelism exists is because true worship doesn't right we're not unlike moses we are going to leave this place here in about five minutes don't worry i'm not kicking you out in five you can stay 10 if you want but you're leaving here and you're entering a mission field you are entering egypt we have met with God. We've had a, whole, uh, a burning bush moment today. God has allowed us to open his word, to hear his heart, to hopefully get a greater understanding of who he is. And now we're leaving, and hopefully the thing that's on our hearts is this. We're to be witnesses, we're to share the word, and we're to invite people into true worship of the God that is not a God that we would manufacture. Are we ready? <laughs> because I know some of you are like, I'm a bit reluctant. You're in good company because Moses is too. Because we're not done with his back and forth with God. We're not done with this guy going, but God, I've got a few more questions, right? It's the, it's the believer that says, you know what, let me pray about that, acting all spiritual when they're just delaying the inevitable. Is it true? Like, I just need some time to think about that. Here's what you need to do. Trust and obey. It's as simple as that. Stop 
arguing and going round and round with your God. Be a witness. Share his word and invite all people to worship the one and true living God that is. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for meeting us in this time at this place. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us by showing things to us about ourselves, but more importantly, by showing us you. May we never, ever lose sight daily of getting a fresh vision of you. Lord, because of Jesus, we have access to you. Because of Jesus, we now have a greater awareness of you. Because of Jesus, we can understand you perhaps better than we've ever understood you before. Lord, help us to live in awe of you. Soak our minds and our hearts in your word. Reveal your, your character and nature to us. Forgive us for the ways we thought this is about us. And Lord, remind us daily that this in the end and forever is about you. Your character, your nature, your name, your mission. Thank you, Father, for calling us to yourself in Christ. Help us today to walk in that manner worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. Help us to honor and glorify you in all things. And help us declare the majesty and magnificence of who you are. So others may know and taste and see that the Lord is good. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Have a great day, guys. We'll see you soon, all right?